what's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Up on the site this week, the Ringer staff has ranked every episode of The Good Place in honor of its series finale this week. Writers Allison Herman, Miles Surrey, Andrew Gudadaro, and more take you through all 51 episodes and celebrate what made the show so great. Later in the week, we're also releasing our February streaming guide with tons of TV and movie recommendations to get you through the month. You can check both those things out on theringer.com. Welcome back to Black on the Air. You are listening to Larry Wilmore. This is my podcast, Black on the Air. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. Welcome to Black on the Air. Nice to have you guys out there in podcast land, whatever that means. Anyhow, we have uh, Nina Turner on the podcast today. I'm very excited to have her on. She's the co-chair for the Bernie Sanders campaign. This is starting to heat up. I'm taping this right now. On January 31st on Friday morning. So Iowa is just about to happen. So it was great to have a conversation with Nina before we know what actually happens, you know. And who knows, man. This Democratic thing is, this is up for grabs as far as I'm concerned at this moment. The Trump impeachment thing is going on. It looks like uh, he's not going (laughs) to get voted off the island, which I didn't think was going to happen anyway. But that's kind of interesting. But, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I just wanted to welcome people. If you haven't listened before, let me just go back and welcome you to the pod. Let me tell you a little bit about it. So, you know, my name is Larry Wilmore. Used to have a little show called The Nightly Show where we said we keep it 100% real. And uh, it was on Comedy Central. I got that show basically after being the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, one of the joys of my life. But my journey in Hollywood has been uh, very long. I've done a lot of work as a writer-producer, producing shows and creating shows that type of stuff. Uh, The Bernie Mac show is probably the most notable show that I created, but I've co-created Insecure, Help Launch, Blackish, Grownish, things like that. Even in Living Color back in the day. So I've had a long career kind of behind the scenes. And I started as a stand-up comic, you know, and and I've done a lot in front of the camera too. So I've been in Hollywood for a long time. I've worked, I've been really fortunate, you guys. I've worked with a lot of cool people. But I love talking to people and I love talking about ideas. And when my show went down, my show, The Nightly Show, was canceled by Comedy Central. I was very fortunate to do Bill Simmons' show on HBO. And Bill and I talked. And, um, you know, we had a mutual hate for each other because he's a Celtics fan and I'm a Lakers fan. He said, you know what, Larry, we need to turn this mutual hate into a podcast. (laughs) It wasn't quite that. Bill was very kind. He said, hey, man, you know, you need to keep your voice out there and and talk to people and everything. And and I'm glad he asked me about that because I have to tell you guys, I hear from people all the time about the nightly show going down and people sad that the nightly show went down because for a lot of people, you know, it was a voice that wasn't on television. You know, we had a lot of diverse voices on the show and, um, you know, people love to hear my take on what was going on. And so I've kind of settled into this podcast space where I get to, I don't focus all the time on that. On the pod, we have people from politics, from entertainment. Sometimes I'll talk about sports, culture, that sort of thing. So um, I hope you, you know, if this is your first time, I hope you enjoy it and go back and listen to some uh, of the episodes. We got a lot of good stuff in there. But I really enjoy this and hope to be doing this for a while. But this year is going to be a really fun year because we're going to focus a lot on the election. I'll be covering in more detail. I'll give my reflections on this whole impeachment thing on the next pod and about Iowa and all that. But today is kind of a special day because, you know, as you know, I'm also a big sports fan and the biggest thing is a Laker fan, as I said. 
And early this week, unfortunately, we lost Kobe Bryant, um, ex-player of the Lakers. And, man, it was devastating. And people have been talking about it and weighing in. So rather than go through all my politics take, I thought I would just take a moment at the beginning of this pod and just give kind of my reflections on Kobe Bryant. I've been a Laker fan since I was a kid. I mean, I remember the Will Chamberlain Jerry West championship, 33 game win streak. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, well, he may still be Lou Alcindor stopping them cold. I remember when Magic was drafted, I couldn't believe it. I was in a barber shop the day before Magic's first game as a Laker, and Magic was there. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, it's Magic Johnson. He said, Who am I? It's Magic. <laughs> and I went over and talked to him and talked to him about 40 minutes. He was still Irvin then, kind of in some ways, but it was Magic. You know, that whole Showtime era. I remember, uh, I'll never forget, um, I was working at Living Color when Magic uh, announced that he came down with HIV, the AIDS virus. We were devastated. I'll never forget that day. It was like, you know, Magic was a family member. That's how strong, you know, we felt about him and here being in Los Angeles, being a Laker fan. And, you know, it felt like the end of an era in so many different ways, you know. Thank God Magic, you know, has been almost a symbol of the fight against that and everything. But it seemed like the Lakers as a team, like when it came to the to the 90s and everything, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then we got Shaq and Kobe and everything changed. And it was amazing. And I remember when Kobe first came on the team, he was like, I don't know if he was 17 or 18, but he was so young. And back then, you know, people weren't getting people right out of high school. I think Garnett was the year before. It wasn't a popular thing to do, and people weren't sure about what the Lakers were doing. And people forget about Eddie George. You know, he was a legit swingman who was in Kobe's position back then, and I wasn't too sure about him, too. I still remember the air balls he threw up against Utah and everything. But I have to tell you, man, I'll tell you what wound me over about Kobe Bryant in the early days was, I think it was the series against Indiana when he um, hurt his ankle, and he was kind of, I think he was kind of hobbling. I think so. I could be wrong. But I think... And I could be mixing up two things, so I apologize. But I do remember that Shaq got hurt, and he was out the last game. And Kobe's like, I got this. And we were like, what? What is this little kid doing? What does he think he's doing? And the way he took over the game, I'm like, that's how you do it. That's what I'm talking about. You know, that's the Lakers. And the Shaq-Kobe relationship, man, just, I mean, it just brought something special to the city that was just magical. And, um... You know, I was a big Kobe fan. I loved his determination and all that kind of stuff. I remember when the when the sexual allegations came out against Kobe. Man, that hit me really hard. I was didn't know what to think about that. You know, here was this guy who I thought was awesome. You know, idolized and not knowing well, who is this guy. You know, and I remember listening to the trial and all that stuff, not knowing what to make of it. I was as much of a, as much as I was troubled by what Kobe was being accused of and troubled with. I was also impressed that he was able to just do his job, you know, and he didn't make a spectacle of it, of the thing. He didn't seem to exploit it one way or the other. Like he didn't use it. In other words, what I mean by that, he didn't use it, um, in a negative way where people are saying, I got to go through this thing or, be one of those athletes that is brooding and disappears or that he was really workmanlike. And, you know, 
for us now, we really didn't know what he was going through personally at the time. We only saw the outside of it. But I think it drew, you know, it caused a schism in people's, I think, just uh, undying love for Kobe. And for me, I think I, you know, I, I'm such a diehard Laker fan. Once again, I didn't know where to put Kobe during that time. And it took me a while. I'll be honest with you, because I'm keeping it 100 percent real. And I think uh, over the years, you know, just my love for the Lakers and my admiration of Kobe was a player was, you know, just right up there. But I don't know if I had the same connection that I did before that moment. And it wasn't until Kobe retired when I saw Kobe the man and he seemed so much more relaxed. There seemed to be joy in him. And the way God, now I'm getting emotional, man, because the way that he dedicated himself to his family and the way that he took care of his girls, you know, and he became this advocate for women's sports, you know, because it's been out there for a while. But sometimes you just need somebody powerful who's, you know, not willing, who doesn't care about, you know, just being, you know, the front person for something. But the love he had for his girls, man, and his effort to rebuild his marriage, which was tough, you know, for many different reasons and you know, that was unmistakable. You can't you can't lie about that kind of genuine genuineness. And I fell in love with Kobe again. You know, it took that it took that journey to say, wow, you know, I really admired that. And I was at um, two important Kobe games. I was at um, the game where he uh, ripped his Achilles against Golden State. My brother and I were there. And we didn't know because in the in the stance, you you know, we don't hear what the announcers are saying about it. We just thought, you know, like he pulled a calf or something. And when he walked to the free throw, if you watch the game, the audience was like, oh, Kobe just walked with the free throw. Maybe he got kicked because we didn't know what was going on. But on TV, everybody was like, oh, shit, Kobe Richards is Achilles and he's going for the free throw line. So there he was just Kobe being Kobe. And I remember seeing it later and just being so impressed by his determination. Nobody has played injured as much as Kobe has, his fingers would be like this sometimes when he'd go out on the court with this taped here and this out of the socket there, you know, an ankle hurting, knee hurting. It's one of the undertold stories about how fierce of a competitor he was with himself, too. And then the last game I was at um, when Kobe was there was not a game he was playing in. It was his last time at Staples. I shared this on my Instagram where he was there with his daughter, with Gigi. You know, and I think about my relationship with my daughter and and the times I've taken her to Laker games and just everybody was drawn to Kobe more than they were to the Lakers at that game. And I got to tell you, man, the determination that that man had to turn his life around and to dedicate it to what he knew was so important is admirable. That is Mamba mentality as far as I'm concerned. And I miss you, Kobe. Feel sad about everybody that was on that um, helicopter. So sad. Those girls, all those girls who lost their lives, the two parents and their girl. It's just a tragedy. In Lakerland, nothing like this has ever happened. But, um, you know, we'll go on. And <sighs> that's how I feel about Kobe. Okay, so um, we'll be right back with my talk with Nina Turner.
All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited about our guest here. She was, uh, of course, on my own show, The Nightly Show, one of the original homies from the show. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Was a state senator for Ohio, but she's the co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign. They're crushing it out there right now as he's surging in the polls. Nina Turner, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so great to be back with you. It's so happy to talk to you again. You know, Bernie, of course, was one of my very first interviews on my podcast when we started up. He was so nice. I got to go to his Senate office. It was great, you know, and uh, just hung out a little bit. I'm like, this is so surreal. I'm hanging with this senator at his Senate office. You know, it was very surreal. Yes, I felt that way once upon a time, too. <laughs> yeah, because I had never been behind those hollow chambers, as they call them, you know. And uh, just being back there, but he couldn't have been nicer. Just really put me at ease, you know, just to have, we had a nice little, like, just pre-casual conversation before we went. They have a little studio in there where we actually did the podcast, but I'll never forget that. Just, uh, and of course he came on the nightly show and couldn't have been nicer. We had a blast. Yeah, you guys had good good chemistry on the show, so it was beautiful. I remember that. I'm a fan of that man. He is a great man. He's awesome. I am too. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you, though. I wanted to have you on because I thought it'd be great to have, here's this African-American woman out there crushing it out there in the heartland. (laughs) You know, this world that you're into, the behind the scenes of it, you know, you know, get it from your perspective of what's going on. I mean, there's so many different issues right now, you know. Before that, though, I want to remind people that we're actually recording this. Oh, and, and Nina is doing this by phone. So thank you once again for doing that because I know how busy you are. My pleasure. Really right. appreciate On the, it. You know, in Ames, Iowa, left the morning. So okay, you're in Ames. Okay. I, yeah, the noise that people may hear in the background is real. This is yeah. real time right. doing the work. So if you guys yeah. hear somebody ordering like a Big Mac or... <laughs> quarter pounder <laughs> and a sweet tea you know which car that is you know it's it's the sweet tea that'll give it away <laughs> do you guys have a sweet tea with that oh no just cu- okay no, I- i'll just have some water That's okay. yeah. <laughs> but uh so I want people to know that this is the friday january 31st so there's a lot that's about to happen so you're kind of getting uh, since let's call it the before, the moment before, because the caucus is on Monday. Is that when it is? Yeah, it's on Monday. That is right. Huge. This is one of the biggest Iowa caucuses in my recent memory. I can't think of a bigger one where we're kind of at this change moment, I guess you could say. But I just wanted to get, do you have any thoughts on this whole impeachment thing? Because that's up in the air right now, too. Um, it, it really, I mean, the senator, as um, you know, many folks know, along with his colleagues, I mean, he, he's a juror in the trial, the impeachment mm. trial of President Donald J. Trump. Yes. And it has really taken up a lot of his time. And yes. it has caused our campaign, you know, he took an oath of office. And so he has been very clear from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, before the senators knew that this was actually going to happen during this time, that no matter when the timing was, that he was going to uphold his constitutional duty. And that's exactly what he is doing. You know, this is a heavy time for the country in many ways. And this is part, you know, this impeachment stuff adds to the the heaviness of, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not we have a president that is so selfish that he would use the purse strings of the taxpayers to try to get dirt on a competitor. Mm-hmm. You know, he certainly has proven himself to be uh, one of the more, well, Lord have mercy. I'm yes. trying to keep it PG there. <laughs> I, I understand. Let's just say You're in that, the heartland. Uh, President Trump, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he leaves a lot to be desired, and he has yeah. not drained the swamp 
as he promised people that he would when he was running. As a matter of fact, he has added to it. So senators there as a juror, you know, the American people stand in witness of what is happening in the United States of America as it relates to that. And no matter what happens in the impeachment trial, we Americans have an opportunity to turn this around, and it's called the presidential election of 2020. Do you think it would be more satisfying to have, uh, let's say, the reckoning happening through an election than through an impeachment? I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Democrats had to do, they had to get all of this on the record, but absolutely, the American people have an opportunity to stake, to to weigh in in a very powerful way and to reject what President Trump has done Mm -hmm. thus far from his cruelty to immigrants to, you know, stripping away EPA regulations. I mean, you name it, he, he's done it. And it has mm-hmm. not been positive for this country to, you know, really putting us in danger uh, with his temper tantrums when it comes to Iran or Iraq and other foreign powers and to even alienating our allies. Where I mean, we cannot, yeah. no nation can go it alone, no matter how great that nation is. And we need a leader who's going to be a person of their word. And he certainly has not been that. So yes, for me, definitely more satisfying because more people get to weigh in. You know, it was not just the senators in the United States Senate. It will be the American people who vote and will stand in judgment mm-hmm. of President Trump. And Nina, you've been on the ground in Iowa for a while now. How, how long have you been on the ground there? I have. I've been back and forth to Iowa well over 15 times. I've lost uh-huh. track of all the different events that I have been a part of. And not just big events. I uh-huh. do coffee clutches, as we call them, or if people can visualize a house party right. where neighbors come over and they talk about you know the election. Uh-huh. And we get a chance to talk to them about why we think Senator Sanders is the best candidate to, to not only take on President Trump, but also to become the next president of the United States of America. So from big rallies with thousands of people to having 20 people in the living room, I have done it. I've done call time. That's I've awesome. knocked on doors. You, you never get too big to do that. I mean, that's no, how I got my start. Yeah, you so have I to got do that. muscle memory, Larry, yes, when it comes exactly. to, <laughs> to knocking on doors. And I'm from Ohio, so the call, yes. I'm accustomed to it. And they say all politics are local, you know. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this. What is the feel like when you're in those living rooms? Um, what's the, the sense that you've been getting, like if you could do a Rorschach of it, of um, like are, are people, is there a sense that people are frustrated or people like, well, whatever, or... Um, are, do people care about the impeachment or are they anxious? Like what, if, what is yeah. your sense generally when you're going in the, sm- I don't mean like the big rallies where people are, sure. are cheering for the, you know, for the punchlines and that sort of thing. But when you're in the one-to-ones in the living room, so what is the feeling that people have? On the street view, and I call it the street view, mm-hmm. people don't bring up the impeachment. I have yet to have one person bring yeah. up impeachment to me. Now, certainly they are aware because it's you know mm-hmm. all over the, the news. They're certainly aware. But the things that they talk about are issues that will have a profound impact on their life. So whether it is environmental, you know, when I'm in places mm. in Iowa, like at Ames, you know, thinking about the farmers, the small farmers who right. are being, you know, pushed aside because of the mega farmers, the whole notion of mm-hmm. pig feces taking over and the stench mm-hmm. and the fact that a lot of these factory farms do not have to pay to clean this up. People who can't even come out of their homes at certain times of the day, 
the poisoning of water, mm. you know, and it's, you know, Flint certainly was the canary in the coal mine when it comes to lead. Sure, but we also need to recognize that there are other toxins and chemicals in our water that may or may not be related to lead. Those are the kinds of issues that I hear about. Or, I mean, Larry, sometimes when I'm on, you know, roads that when mm-hmm. I go into more rural areas, whether it's in Iowa right. or also in South Carolina, and I lose connectivity. I mean, right now, if I was were on more rural parts of Iowa, sure. you and I could very easily get disconnected because <laughs> of all that. And it just right. reminds me of how those of us who navigate cities most often really take it for granted uh-huh. that we will always have a connection. But there are people in this country who don't always have a connection. And imagine if you got stranded on the road or you really yeah. need some help and you don't have a tower to give you connection on your cell phone. Those are the kinds of, you know, how am I going to educate my children? How am I going to afford college? Will I have clean air, clean water, clean food? Those are the issues that people care about the most. And when they talk about those issues, Larry, then I am able to listen Mm -hmm. and embrace what they just said and then talk to them about why I believe Senator Bernard Sanders is the best candidate running in this race to be the next president and how he wants to change their material conditions. That is what is important to the workers, uh, the the workers from all walks of life in this country. And it's funny, connection is both metaphorical and literal in, in your sense, too. You know, <laughs> yes. how you're saying connected. Yes. Curious, um, have the farmers that you've talked to and people that are dealing with that, and they're interesting, you bring up an interesting point, uh, corporate farming versus the small farming, which is um, very interesting, um, which is another comment that Bernie, Bernie's been passionate about you know, how corporations get away with so many things for a long time, you know, or those big corporations, that sort of thing. But what about trade? You know, have farmers been hurt by the president's kind of wild trade games with, um, you know, and that sort of thing? Has this been that sense or is it other things that are that they're thinking about? No, that's part of it. You know, mm-hmm. and even in my home state, Ohio, which, you know, has a strong rural part. I mean, agriculture is a very Mm-hmm. Some part of the economy in Ohio, absolutely those trade deals have hurt the farmers and they make it known. So from, you know, the trade deals that the president put forward or didn't put forward, he's playing, you know, games with people's lives because see, he doesn't have to worry about where his next meal is going to come from. He doesn't have to worry about being able to make the mortgage of his farm. Mm-hmm. It really shows, again, a selfishness. He ran as a populist, but it was a faux populism, and we can see it through his actions. So, you know, whether it's trade deals or, you know, worrying about a job. I've learned so many lessons from farmers across this country that one spouse, you know, if there are spouses or partner, has to work a regular job so that they can have health care. Right. Because family farmers don't have health care if they just mm-hmm. keep it within just that business. So oftentimes the other spouse and or partner has to work a job out in other markets so that they can provide the family with health care. Mm-hmm. So the reason why many farmers really support Medicare for All is because then they can put all of their resources into running their family farm. The health care that they are able to access will not be tied to a job, mm-hmm. and that is a type of freedom. So whether we're talking about farmers right. or other types of entrepreneurs or even people who are blessed enough to be on a job that has health care from year to year, and we really don't think about it, we really are at the mercy of our employer. They can change plans. Yes. The, 
Yeah, and, and the cost of health care is going up. Medicare for all takes that all away. And it really is a quality of life issue. They don't have that country doctor that comes to the house, you know, with his bag. No, <laughs> gone are those days, Larry. Well, let me say, Once open your mouth, time. son. There you go. Uh, he looks okay. Just give him some ice cream. He'll be fine. Yeah. Once upon a time. Um, yeah. what do you, now, let's talk about Iowa itself just for a second, because it's funny how sure. people have tried to, um, I don't know, if it's, uh, dismiss Iowa or downgrade it or say, why do we have to go to Iowa or that type of thing? I find those arguments so silly. I always call those losing loser arguments. It's like people say that when they're losing, but they never That's say right. it when they're winning. They, like, they, they move the goalposts. Exactly. You know? Let's get rid of Iowa. Let's start where I can start <laughs> off winning, you know. like that. That's <laughs> right. what the real argument usually is, you know. Or like even at the Electoral College, you know, people can be for or against it. But usually if you're against it, it means it 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 screwed you in the last election. And if you're That's for right. it, it, it served you in the last it election. It worked for you. Exactly. Right. You know? Absolutely. But um, do you get a sense that um, that whoever wins in Iowa, they're the they that's going to make the probably the biggest difference here? Or do you think it's going to be this first few collection of states. It feels to me like because of the nature of this thing that Iowa is going to be a statement with the exception of Biden. I think if Biden wins, it's still not going to tell us anything. But I think if 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 it's your boy or if it's, you know, someone else or even a second, a strong second place, I think could be an interesting indicator sure. as well. You know, no, what, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, Iowa is important. Now, we can debate as a nation and we should uh, the Democratic Party in particular, whether or not but those you know, people are smart about the, the, politics in Iowa, too, you know. I mean, who caucuses, for Christ's sakes? I mean, you have to kind of know what the stuff is if you're going to caucus. Caucusing is hard work. It is, I my yes. first caucus in 2016 in Nevada. Ooh, Larry, let me just tell you something. The sister wasn't ready for what I <laughs> saw and ears heard. Let me, it, it really well, tell, tell us, what, what was the most surprising thing about the caucus? I mean, it's, it's, it's a buzz. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So it is kind of prohibited if you have a job or if you need to have child right. care. It's communal. So on the positive side of caucus, my experience is that it's very communal. So unlike a primary right. state like my state of Ohio, where you're going to catch a ballot and buck out, exactly. a caucus is really about building community. You get to see your friends and your neighbors and have conversation and then try to win people over. And people you know, can your pull, candidate's side. People can pull you over. Yeah, there can be influence yeah, they there. they can pull you over. So right. it's very communal. There's something the interesting and democratic though, about it, too. Yeah. It, it, it takes a lot of time. And so yes. we need to find ways in which, you know, we did in the in the in our Unity Reform Commission, recommend ways to make it more accessible for people who can't spend eight hours, 12 hours, 16 hours you know, a in a caucus so that they can vote absentee and those kinds of things. So I love the communal side, but it is a lot of energy and a lot of work. And what tends to happen is that the diehards are the ones that come out and the diehards mm-hmm. are the ones that stick around. So definitely we must continue to make the caucus mm-hmm evolve to fit 21st century realities, but the communal nature of it. Now, when it comes to Iowa, because you asked a very important question. Uh-huh. Yes, Iowa is going to be where the dominoes fall. It will set the tone. It will give momentum. Mm-hmm. And right now, that momentum is with our campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've not half a million doors in January in Iowa. Those, that that wasn't just, that, that wasn't staffers. That was a volunteer 
army of committed people that the senator, this movement, people like me, who, you know, I am a movement leader in my own right, have amassed to this. And it didn't happen overnight. This came from when yeah. he first announced in 2015. And that's what people are missing, Larry, that mm-hmm. to build a movement, to build a coalition takes time. It's it not does something take that you time. do overnight. Yeah, it's not something that you just stand up and say, oh, I'm running for president and people. No, it's not just about supporters. It's about a real movement that is multiracial, multigendered, multigenerational movement of conscious-minded people. And that's what we have. And that's why I am so proud to, to be able to be blessed mm-hmm. enough to travel all over this country and meet people from all walks of life who really are, are about the business of transcendence in this country. Nina, what was it that attracted you and you personally in 2015 about Sanders, we're just coming out of Obama at that time. No one was yeah. taking Trump seriously. Um, mm-hmm. Hillary seemed to be the candidate in waiting. You know, I mean, she legitimately was the front runner early on in 08. Everyone thought she'd be president. You know, Obama really, sure. he, Obama is the exception of that candidate that really can come from out of nowhere and build a coalition almost overnight. But they were very smart about it. A lot of footwork, yeah. a lot of using technology and that kind of stuff. And he was so charismatic, you know. A lot of it was timing with Obama. I th- you know, it's funny because I, yeah. I wasn't sure he should have run in a way, but it, his timing turned out to be perfect. If he had waited, it would have been too late probably. But what was, right. for you personally, though, um, why Sanders and not Hillary at that point? Well, thank you for this question. You know, I was mm-hmm. just with a bishop yesterday in Houston. I was trying to went over to the senator. He asked me that question, and mm-hmm. very few people ever asked me that. So thank you for that. You know, like everybody else, I was going to go the Democratic way. Mm-hmm. You know, I had just come off of a hard race. I ran for Secretary of State at Great State right. of Ohio in 2014, right. yeah. taking mm-hmm. on, you know, a Republican incumbent with money on top of money. And in a state where an African-American had never won, a Democrat, I should say, had never won statewide, which is unfortunately a stain on this nation because it is the reality in most states in the United States of America, but I digress. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was approached <laughs> by, you know, ready for Hillary folks saying, sure. hey, you know, we don't know if she's going to run. But First woman president, all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, we'd love for you to use your incredible skills to help, because Democrats had lost handedly in 2014, too, so people were feeling bad. Right, and, you know, in the midterms. And me, would mm-hmm. I just lift people, lift Democrats? And I did that, and so I was almost assured that I was going to go that way. And then Senator Bernie Sanders makes an announcement, and my husband called me up, and he he asked me, he said, baby, did you know this Bernie Sanders? And I said, yes, I do know of him. And That's it was from funny. 2010 when the senator filibustered, Larry, you may remember, for eight and a half hours against the extension of the Bush tax cut. So I was very right. familiar with the senator. And I said, yes. He said, oh, he sounds just like you. And wow. it was listening to him talk about two issues really tugged at my heart the most, mm-hmm. and it was college for all mm-hmm. and Medicare for all mm. college for all, because I am a first generation college graduate. I am still holding college debt. And between my son and I, we still have over a hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt. And my son is a millennial. But at that time, you know, I was just thinking about the jump and becoming a cycle breaker and being the oldest of seven children, mm. being the first one to graduate from college and having a mother who died at the young age of mm. 42 years old mm, with her sorry. dreams deferred. I was 22 when she died. My younger mm. sister was 12 and there's seven of us. And so I just had a flashback about my life mm-hmm. and the arduous journey. And I'm thinking, my God, 
you got a leader who's finally saying to people in this country that it should be college for all. It should be tied to how much money your parents make or don't make. That mothers and fathers, mamas and daddies can look into the eyes of their babies and they do can go to college if you want to. And it doesn't matter my income. And it, it, it just it just caused me to have that kind of flashback. And then for my son to be a second generation college graduate and me saying, man, I'm breaking this cycle and how proud and my mother was still alive today that she would be. And then Medicare for all. My mother died on the system, Larry, of welfare. Uh, you know, I am a, my family, we are safety net children. Mm-hmm. We've been on Medicaid, food stamps, you name it. Whatever it takes. And I started right? thinking about what, right, whatever it takes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought about all of those programs and I just thought about my young mother who died with her dreams deferred. You know, Langston Hughes asked that most important mm-hmm. question in one of his poems, what happens to a dream deferred? Yeah. So it was Raising those in the two issues that cemented for me why, why I could not continue the course. Either I had two choices, either go with my head or go with my heart. Take the easy path or take the arduous path. Mm-hmm. And I took the arduous path, and I've been catching hell ever since. Mm-hmm. But if somebody were to ask me, knowing all that you know and all that you've gone through and continue to go through as a black woman on the progressive left, yes, would you do it again? And the answer would be absolutely yes. It is one of the best decisions that I've ever made. I don't regret it. But the hate and the venom that I get as a black woman, you know, you talk about black women lead or listen to black women. But no, if you support Senator Bernie Sanders, if you are a Bernie bro, which I consider myself, is it, you don't get those kind of protections. People can talk about you like a dog, call mm-hmm. you all kinds of names, but they call it Antipima a turd, you know, Mm. I've been uh, dressed down by people who represent themselves as white men on Twitter, white women on Twitter, you know, even sometimes black folks may dip in, and I say represent themselves because people can lie and be anybody. But Mm. if you are on the progressive left, you don't get the same kind of protections and love because we can be um, maligned. But Mm -hmm. if you are a mainstream black woman, you get all the support that you need. So it has been an arduous journey. Even to this day, Larry, I still catch hell, but it's okay. I am still moving forward with what I believe in in my heart. And I fully believe in with the cachet that I bring traveling all over this country, leading and guiding this movement as the senator calls me the heart and the soul of this movement. And I (laughs) All of that to lift people. I am a hell raising humanitarian. They don't define me as president um, right. or uh, first lady Eleanor Roosevelt once said, it doesn't matter what they call you is what you answer to. Mm. And so I, this has been quite a journey for me and I feel as though I'm on a mission. Mm-hmm. I am a missionary on a mission to help change this world for the working poor and the barely middle class. How I got over. Yes. My soul is back in wonders. How well, I got over. Well, let me let me go back to that point you raised on the, the black point, because it is an interesting point. It came up in the 2016 election. I remember covering some of it. Yeah. Where there was, I'm going to call it a disconnect is what I'll call it. And it would be nice if you describe it since you were in it then. Why do you think there was a disconnect between the Sanders campaign and let's say, let's call it the black vote rather than black people. Uh, I think that's a okay. um, a yeah. better way to talk about it because I think there, I, I honestly think it comes from a lot of people just not being familiar with the Senator personally. Um, no, you're right. But I think there was outside of that familiarity, there did seem to be some racial elements in there that, seem to be have you know a lot of the stuff that you're talking about like i don't know where that spin came from you know 
that there's some some racial stuff we should be concerned about here. Yeah, no, we should. I mean, where you, it, Senator Sanders represents a very white state in America. That's right. a fact. That's true. You know, but I mean, you, you can't you can't his, do, you you can't do that much meth up there and and not be that white. Seriously. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, there are more diverse states in the union, but he represents yes. a state that is white. But if people really do go back and look at his record from, you know, being a 20-something college student at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. to what he's doing right now in the 21st century, they will see that Senator Sanders has been on the justice journey. So the the, the smear, of, you know, when people tried to label him, they did label him. It's no different than the Obama boys, as you may remember, mm-hmm. that they put forward when they were coming up against uh, then-Senator Obama. They called his supporters Obama boys. And then they took that same thing up another notch. And and called the supporters of Senator Sanders the uh, the Bernie Bros. So it's all a made up fictitious aim to try to separate the senator from uh, from the people of this nation, and namely African Americans and also women. So the senator has a commitment to the African American community. He understands the disparities within the disparities. He knows that black people suffer disproportionately to any other group in this country, mainly mainly in the criminal justice system or injustice system when it comes to economics, the same. I mean, black folks lost 40% of their wealth during the Great Recession, which was in our homes. Mm-hmm. He understands that the community that bore the brunt of the war on drugs, African-American communities. He understands that there's almost a billion black men in prison. Meanwhile, black men, you know, barely make up 7% of the nation's population. He understands that our wealth was stolen from us. He gets all of that in a very deep and profound way. But people who want to continue to put up a divide you know, between him and the African-American community, that's what they did in 2016. So the black voter, as you just you know, you talked about there's a familiarity, uh, there was a familiarity, mm-hmm. a familiarness, if you will, between the black community in 2016. And the yeah, yes, 2016. Right. But you can see that as time has passed, and the black community, as with other communities, when they see they they heard the man's mission, now they understand the man. The black community is turning to Senator Sanders because they've had a chance to really get to know him over the last four years. And the highest group that supports the senator right now among the youth, because, you know, he got the millennials, he got the Z mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. But African-American young adults are outpacing every other ethnic group in their support for Senator Sanders. In the youth demo, right? Yes, in the youth. And youngish, mm-hmm. because there's some people in the fort, you know, like— in, in, Bumping up against 40. So I say the youth, the young and the youngish are rocking with Senator Sanders. And a lot of that has to do with his authenticity. And Larry, a lot of that also has to do with the fact that black people have never been able to do status quo. See, status quo has never worked for us as a people. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be liberated without, you know, going against the grain, without a revolution, if you will, Mm -hmm. from abolishing slavery to dealing with Jim Crow, black codes. You name it. Status quo don't work for black folks. And so we need the type of leadership that says that I am going to go up against the system and change material conditions. I'll give you a great example. Canceling student 
debt alone. And we got a lot to do in this country. This country has the answer to the horrors. And it's not, we don't have to go as far back as slavery. As I said, black folks lost 40% of their wealth during the Great Recession. But let me just use cancel soup debt as an, as an example, if okay. I may. Mm-hmm. Canceling student debt. Black women hold the greatest amount of student debt in this country. Canceling student debt would close the white to black wealth gap from 12 to 1 to 5 to 1. That's just a start. But that's what that will do. When we think about all of the programs that the senator and, and universality in and of itself is not going to necessarily alone attack institutional and systemic racism, but it gets us close. And we have a candidate who understands that. Let me that ask is you a beautiful thing. Let me ask you about that, because I, I, that's something that I don't agree with. Um, I don't know how you cancel debt like you just cancel people's debt, you know, and and I'm like. Well, if you're canceling student debt, how about canceling my debt? There's a lot of debt out there that we could cancel. Why are we just canceling student debt? You know, and how does the government have the right to just cancel people's debt? Well, you know, the federal government backs up, as you know, student loans. Right, through private banks, right? So, you know, where there's a will, there is a way. I mean, it's the same way that we bailed out Wall Street. I mean, it's the same thing. Right, but but point. but it feels like we're we're not talking about the cost of college, which to me is so significant. Like it's the cost of college when I was going to school, it costed nothing compared to what it costs now. And the only yeah. the only uh, correlation to me is real estate. Those are the two things that have risen like that, especially being in California. Yeah. And to me, there's really no explanation for it. And I I don't feel enough Agreed. people. You know, Greed is the explanation. Yes, like Bernie saying we should make college free makes sense to me, but to me, erasing college debt is a separate issue. Like, like I think that opens up a can of worms as to, I mean, a lot of people have paid for college in different ways, and they're in the hole from paying for it, you know, as well as people who are in debt, you know. Like, is that, it feels like it's opening a can of worms, it seems to me. Yes. I, I, under, I, I understand the the meaning behind it, that what that's done uh-huh. to people, but I feel it's a different relationship between debt and debtor as opposed to can we change this structure of why college is so expensive and reduce that and make sure. it easy for people to go? To me, Well, we can do both, and, mm-hmm. and brilliant minds can disagree. I, I understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the fact that we don't question bailing out Wall Street, question the fact that, and I'm mm-hmm. not saying you, but I'm just speaking right. in general terms. No, I, I don't Trump, disagree with that. Yeah. $1.6 trillion. <laughs> no, it's crazy. Rate. And by the way, that, the wealthiest people. that was your boy Obama was behind some of that, you know. Some, some of that. I mean, so we got to be <laughs> real. That, that is why the senator said Wall Street, I'm coming for your greed. And he is reminding right. the worker day people of this nation from all walks of life that you deserve better than what you are getting. If we can find and marshal the resources to mm-hmm. do those kinds of things for big banks and do that for Wall Street. I mean, Amazon pays zero in federal taxes. Mm-hmm. You have hundreds of corporations in this country who pay zero. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Ms. Jones has to pay federal taxes. Right. No, we can't. That $1.6 trillion tax cut that President Trump and his Republicans gave to the wealthiest people in this country, we could take that same money and relieve the student debt in this country. And the way that that debt you know, the way that we allow banks to manipulate and take advantage of students that go to college. Why do we pay so much? No, you know, it's there was crazy. Once upon a time when you talk to elders, they remind us that college costs almost next to nothing. So people who are a generation ahead of you, Larry, it, ahead of me. It used to be free in California. almost nothing. Yeah. 
Um, has has there ever been a thought to like even getting rid of the interest? Like, I don't think there should be interest on those loans. You know, sure. Uh, yeah, no, know. that's a great idea. No, I totally agree with you. We do have to find a way to do a new thing because it really thwarts. It definitely needs to be addressed. I, I agree with that. For yeah. Sure. Some people don't want to even dream that they can go to college. They stop no, themselves because they don't want the debt and they don't they don't want to put the burden on their parents. I've talked to so many students who are yeah. in college and they feel bad. They feel guilty. They're glad to be in college, but they think about what this is doing to their families. Yeah. This hurts the middle class. This hurts the working class. Already in such a home. In terms of the working class, like, what is the, besides a uh, tax reform, which to me is kind of an immediate type of relief possible, but about relief going forward, which we all acknowledge is the working class ability to actually work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, um, where's, where's Sanders in terms of addressing that? I don't know if I've heard that addressed by, by many candidates. You know, I've heard the, the redress issues on it, but I haven't heard the— on- on, on the working class, like, you know, they, the taxes are wrong or forgiving human debt or, or Medicare for all. But what about actual work? You like the loss of the type of manufacturing jobs. And what are the types of jobs yeah. that we need for, like, for instance, when people who are working class, they usually think white. But there's black working class. There's Mexican working class. There's Asian. There, a lot of people are working class in the different areas. Like, what are the types of, is there any thought from your campaign about how do you help in the creation of these type of opportunities for for this class that unfortunately is dwindling in their ability to make a decent living and you know I'm I'm glad that you brought up working class is uh, universal. So those of us who are just thinking white is right. that's not right. When we say working class and that's why I always emphasize of all backgrounds because of what you just said is mm-hmm. a whole notion when you say working class you're just talking about white. And we're talking about all working class. Right. And as a matter of fact you know, I don't even know why we continue to say working class and middle class because last time I checked, middle class folks work. You yes, know, exactly. Class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, know, it's sometimes a dis- you're at the yes, very bottom of that right. class. Sometimes yes, that's you're right. in the middle of that. Sometimes you're at the tippy top. Well, they used to call it. They used to call it blue collar as opposed to working blue class. Blue collar. So yeah, they've blue kind collar of changed and that. hell, some white collar too, depending on where you are. <laughs> yes, but yeah, that's people true. who work for a living who do yes. not have some trust fund waiting on them, but they got to work and work it hard. All the time. You know, one of the ways that we are going to address that, the senator's vision, our vision for that, it can be seen in the in the Green New Deal, for example, creating mm-hmm. 20 million jobs in this country, the infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt in this country from schools to roads and bridges will put lots of people back to work and even strengthen so we can do a good thing and for both Mother Earth, but also do a good thing for the workaday people of this nation. And then the support types of jobs mm-hmm. that are necessary. When you look at Medicare for All, for example, what does that look like and what types of jobs are going to be needed mm-hmm. to make sure that that system is vibrant and, and rolling along in a very strong way? So, no, we do understand, the senator does understand that we need to make sure that not only do we put people back to work, because there are lots of people who are, really are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet. Their mm-hmm. maternal material conditions have not really changed. And so while we like to, in this country, judge the health of our economy by Wall Street, what's going on there, we need to dip in every now and then and look in on Main Street. And when people have to work two or three jobs for their livelihood, and if they have children, that takes away time spending with their children. They don't get a chance to enjoy life. People shouldn't have to work themselves to death where every now and then folks should no, be able to take a vacation. I agree. Or spend time with their kids or go to the PTA. 
you know, poverty should not be a death sentence in this country. So, yes, we do need to create the types of jobs that will give people the opportunity to live a good life. And that is why the Fight for 15 is such an important movement. Mm-hmm. It gets people closer um, do you think, to living are you talking about the, for their You're family. talking about the minimum wage? Yes, we got to yeah. increase the minimum wage. Right. People are starving. I met a teacher, Larry, in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. She got up and told her story. She's been working in the school system for 31 years. She is just now making, drum roll please, $64,000 a year. 31 Uh years. Uh Meanwhile, CEOs, even when they mess up, and I want to use the other word, they get a gold parachute worth millions. You got a woman who's been in the teaching profession for 31 years, hmm. and she is just now making $64,000 a year. It is a sin and a shame. And so Senator has a plan called the Thurgood Marshall Quality Education Plan, mm-hmm. which will start teachers off at a base salary of $60,000 and build from there. Right. So, Larry, I mean, we this is it. We, we, we've got to go. Transcendence is upon us. The workaday people of this nation deserve better than what they have been getting. And Senator Bernie Sanders is leading that charge along, and he gets by with a little help from his friends. <laughs> and uh, certainly people like me and other leaders across this country who believe in his vision and will be right there to help him implement it. So, Larry, I'm at my destination. I got people Great. been waiting for 15 <laughs> okay. minutes. For, for I understand. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, I, and just to give you credit to Bernie's been talking about these things for years and years and years. He's not, uh, he's, he's been for these same issues, you know, forever. And, uh, and I'm so happy for you and, you know, all the work that you're doing is very important. Go knock on those doors, make it happen. I hope uh, to see some good news for you next week and all that stuff. Thank you, Larry, so much. And again, congratulations to you and your team. Oh, for congratulations for me. Congratulations to you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Until next time. Yes, thank you so much for being on Black on the Air. And we'll see you out there. She may be knocking on your door, you guys. She may be knocking. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.